Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. This episode is part of a summer book club that I'm hosting on this podcast. In efforts to read and write more on topics related to race and injustice, I decided to log out of my Instagram account for the summer, and I'm instead focusing my time and energy here. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me for part two on the book, How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. Today, I'm going to be talking about the second chapter in the book, which goes over the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana, the site of a famous slave rebellion in 1811. So before I get started today, you may hear some ambient noise in the background. As I'm recording this, there is a big thunderstorm going on outside, and my daughter is currently downstairs playing, and we're in the process of trying to get her walking because she's a little bit behind on hitting that milestone. So you may hear some occasional baby squawks as well. But to kind of jump into this, I want to read the history that Clint Smith gives of the Whitney Plantation and its significance that it has for us today. Quote, Between the wooden white fence and the red brick path where I stood, there was a plot of earth where the dark heads of 55 black men sat on metal stakes. Their heads were balanced on robust silver rods that pushed their necks towards the sky. Their eyes were shut and some of their faces were contorted, as if frozen in a permanent state of anguish. Many had thin white bandanas wrapped around their foreheads, the small knots lying against their temples. Sunlight glinted from the ceramic statues and created a soft glow. It almost seemed as if their gleaming cheeks were covered in both blood and sweat. These heads, renderings of a violent past, are an exhibit at the Whitney Plantation in Wallace, Louisiana, located an hour west of New Orleans. From a distance, the human likeness of these statues is so unsettling that I get closer just to be sure. Each of the faces is nameless, with the exception of the ten that sit at the front. Mathurin, Cook, Gilbert, Amar, Lindor, Joseph, Dagobert, Comina, Hippolyte, Charles. These were the leaders of the largest slave rebellion in U.S. history. These were the people who decided that enough was enough. On a rainy southern Louisiana evening in January 1811, Charles de a mixed-race slave driver, led this massive armed rebellion composed of hundreds of people with a military discipline that surprised many of their adversaries. It is remarkable to consider that hundreds of enslaved people who came from different countries with different native languages and different tribal affiliations were able to organize themselves as effectively as they did. In the 1811 uprising in Louisiana, as the men marched along the bends of the river, drums rumbling, flags held high above their heads, they attacked several plantations with an assortment of knives, machetes, muskets, and other scavenged weapons 
killing two white men and destroying property in their wake. The conspirators had laid the groundwork for several months through careful and secretive planning and using coded language so as not to tip off unsympathetic eavesdroppers. The farther they marched, the more men joined and more weapons they accrued. Still not many of the enslaved fighters had guns, and it would take only a small number of armed troops to stop their liberatory march. Within 48 hours, local militia and federal troops suppressed the rebellion. The Slandas briefly escaped the initial wave of slaughter by hiding in the swamp, but was quickly captured and executed. His hands were chopped off, the bones in his legs were shattered by bullets, and he was burned over a bale of straw. Many of the rebels were slaughtered on sight, their heads cut off and posted on stakes that lined the levee, a warning to other enslaved people that this was the price to pay for rebellion. End quote. I want to give also the backstory of the current owner to give some context to how this place is today and what the mission is. So here's a quote. John Cummings grew up in New Orleans and attended Catholic schools from kindergarten through college, graduating from Loyola University, New Orleans, with a business and law degree. He became a successful lawyer focusing on large class action tort cases, opening offices in New Orleans, Philadelphia, and Seattle. While he was building and expanding his law practice, John found causes beyond the court. In addition to being an attorney, John had a successful career in real estate. One day in 1998, a friend gave him a call and told him that the old Whitney plantation was for sale. At this point, he wasn't thinking of it for the site's historical significance. It was simply another potentially profitable real estate acquisition. The plantation was in bad shape, but John thought he would clean it up and, similar to what had been done with other plantations throughout the South, turn it into a tourist destination. That changed when he was given a report commissioned by Formosa. The company had hired independent experts to provide a history of the property. After reading the report, John started seeking out more documents about slavery that ultimately pushed him to make the Whitney into a place willing to reckon with the history he was confronting. John began the process of educating himself. As I got into studying slavery, and I've read probably 1,100 oral histories, I thought, sooner or later, I'm going to get to one where the woman was not raped or the man was not almost beaten to death or branded or his finger cut off or his ear cut off for trying to run away. But I haven't gotten there yet, he added. You get an eerie feeling because it's their words, more or less, and you feel as though someone is talking to you who never had a voice, and all of a sudden, you feel very strange. It's not a feeling of guilt, it's a feeling of discovered ignorance. John has invested more than $10 million of his own money into the museum over the course of a 15-year restoration effort, end quote. I shared both of those passages to kind of give you a foundation for this discussion that I'm about to have about the Whitney Plantation uh, based on this chapter. So to begin, we're going to debunk the myth, and this was kind of brought up in part one about the idea of a benevolent slave owner. So here's a couple of quotes. Children under 10 were 51% of total black deaths in 1850 compared to 38% of white deaths. Put differently, as Mississippi planter M.W. Phillips wrote, 
Not one-fourth of the slave children born are raised. Most of the children here died as toddlers. Most of them died of maltrition and disease. We do know through others that sometimes enslaved women would kill their own children because they didn't want them to grow up in the system. That is something that we do see in this history, women making this really, really unimaginable decision because they understand, especially if they have young girls, what it would be like for them, end quote. I share that quote to provide some context because as I'm reading this book, Clint Smith talks about how when he's visiting these various locations, visitors would often ask questions about the quality of life of slaves that were kept on these plantations. The author reflects on the fact that he grew up in New Orleans, which isn't too far from the Whitney Plantation, but he himself was relatively unaware of the history that was present in his own state. So here's a quote. I thought of my primary and secondary education. I remembered feeling crippling guilt as I silently wondered why every enslaved person couldn't simply escape like Douglas, Tubman, and Jacobs had. I found myself angered by the stories of those who did not escape. Had they not tried hard enough? Didn't they care enough to do something? Did they choose to remain enslaved? This, I now realize, is part of the insidiousness of white supremacy. It illuminates the exceptional in order to implicitly blame those who cannot, in the most brutal circumstances, attain superhuman heights. It does this instead of blaming the system, the people who built it, the people who maintained it. End quote. Another theme that I'm seeing through the books that I'm exploring this summer is a undercurrent of several human rights violations uh, throughout this institution of slavery. A lot of these authors are giving special attention to the plight of female slaves on these plantations. Quote, in order to really understand slavery, we have to understand what slavery meant for women. Sexual violence was ubiquitous throughout slavery, and it followed enslaved women wherever they went. The violence enacted are part of a long history in which black women were seen as both undesirable and sexually objectified. This is the illogic of white supremacy. It does not need intellectual continuity. When that man made Julia's sister lie down in his bed, he did not have to believe her to be less than human. He simply had to know that she did not have the power to stop him. To be sure, enslaved women often resisted these advances in ways large and small, but they were up against not only the physical power of the person enacting the violence against them, but also the power of the state, the power of patriarchy, the power of a society. These acts were not only permissible, but legally encouraged. There were laws stating that almost any crime committed by a white person against a black person was, in fact, not a crime at all. The illogic of it all appears to reveal a simple linear truth that is often lost. Oppression is never about humanity or lack thereof. It is, and always has been, about power. End quote. On that same theme of human rights violation, uh, I've mentioned a few times through the books that I've been reviewing about 
mistrust of the medical system within the Black community. And so this passage adds some more context to that history. Quote, A lot of medical schools during the history of slavery largely depended on cadavers of enslaved people. That's who they practice on. Black women's bodies were used in experiments to advance medicine, like the field of gynecology. It's like their bodies are constantly being exploited at every age, even in their death. In her book, historian Diana Ramey Berry writes about how some of the country's top medical schools, places like Harvard, the universities of Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, use the corpses of enslaved people, often purchased on the black market as tools for their research and medical education. The body trade was as elaborate as the transatlantic and domestic slave trade that transported Africans to the New World and resold African Americans on our soil. But when enslaved people died, some were sold again and trafficked along the same roads and waterways they traveled while alive. Medical schools typically used the corpses of executed criminals or unclaimed bodies from prisons and almshouses, itself an aberrant practice. But when there were not enough of those needed bodies for their anatomy classes, schools paid people to go to cemeteries and dig up the bodies of the enslaved. End quote. I don't think that I had so much awareness about the complicated history behind medicine in the United States and how it is built upon a lot of these black market deals and exploitation of enslaved people. And it brings to mind how we learn in school about the Holocaust and we learn about how medical experiments were conducted on the enslaved people in the concentration camps. And as we hear those stories, we all, of course, think, well, this is an atrocity, this is terrible, but it's not very well known that the same thing happened in the United States for hundreds of years. So that is definitely an important context to share. Something that I also appreciated in this chapter is that Clint Smith discusses the bigger picture because it's easy to get tunnel visioned on the individual plantations and this economy of slavery. However, the institution began in Europe. So here's a quote to provide some context. It's so easy for people to just look at these plantation owners and be like, this history is awful, but what are the larger implications of a global society? In England, these factory workers were going to work in the 19th century, and all of a sudden, molasses comes on the market. There in England, for instance, sugar became cheaper and more accessible, something factory workers could buy, Yvonne pointed out. Poor people can now afford sweetener, which used to be reserved for the elite. And so these individuals are going to work, and now they can start purchasing sweetener for their afternoon tea, and then they start to demand it. That is in direct correlation to the people who are enslaved on these plantations. And so it helps people understand that it's not so cut and dry. It's not just like these overseers were sadistic people. The plantations were morally bankrupt and corrupt. Yes, they were. But also in Europe, once the appetite for sugar and chocolate and coffee and cheap textiles and all of these things started flooding the market and people can finally buy into this larger system of capitalism and consumption, who is at the other end of it? 
end quote. And I'm going to conclude this review on the chapter with a observation of the author as he concluded his visit to the Whitney Plantation and was reflecting on the things that he learned. Quote, I stepped off the creaking porch of the slave cabin and turned around, looking in the direction of the memorial to the 1811 slave revolt, which sits on the plantation's edge. I thought of how I had grown up in Louisiana and had never been taught that the largest slave rebellion in U.S. history happened just miles from the city that had raised me, the uprising that laid the groundwork for all the slave revolts that followed in its wake. End quote. So once again, thank you for joining me on this Summer Book Club series. I'm going to continue reviewing this book on the next episode. The chapter discusses Angola Prison, so be sure to come back to check out the next episodes in this series. But until then, take care. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast, and best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.